Unitarian Universalism is known as a liberal religion. And it, it's been known that as such a thing uh, long before uh, the current argument of what it means to be a liberal or conservative. They're not this, the words mean different things. In an essay, James Luther Adams laid out the tenets of what it means to be a liberal religion. The first tenet, or what he calls smooth stone of liberal religion, is that in liberal religion, revelation is not sealed. If you're new to religious spaces, that might seem like a strange uh, statement. And if you didn't grow up in a conservative or fundamentalist church, it might seem even weirder. However, if you did, that phrase makes considerable sense. See, much of Christianity works from the perspective, not all, but much, and often the loudest voices we hear, works from the perspective that revelation is sealed. And the faith I grew up in, it meant that it was sealed in the pages of the Bible between the book of Genesis and Revelation. That from that point forward, Revelation has ceased. That Revelation is not sealed means that the world is still full of prophetic voices that provide a different perspective that helps us better understand the world around us and ourselves. It means that a liberal faith like Unitarian Universalism has built in forward momentum. And because of this momentum, we're not reaching backward trying to restore something that's long gone and dead or ancient. We're building something new even when we reach back to listen to those voices that are long gone. And it also means that our DNA, as you use, requires that we are in ever-changing faith. Practicing what David Ferenc called religious innovation. Over time, it became clear in our faith that the innovation is more than the theology we put down on paper or preach from the pulpits. But it we realize that it does matter who we read, who is allowed to put down that theology on paper, and who is allowed to preach from that pulpit. Which is why we were one of the first religious or, or one of the first religions uh, to ordain women, even though it would take longer than it should have for it to become common. Universalist writer and philosopher Judith Sargent Murray wrote in 1779 an essay called On the Equality of the Sexes. It was published later in two parts in 1790. And um, I really appreciate Mary uh, being my worship associate this morning. We sat down and talked and Mary said, and I told her I was going to say this is the joke part of the sermon, but Mary said, I hate this reading. And I said, I know, I understand, because it's long, it's verbose. She uses uh, flower in her language that 
without multiple read-throughs is almost impossible to decode. But what's also important to know with Judith Sargent Murray is that much of her writing was written under a male pseudonym so that she could be published. In this poem, in uh, her pivotal work on the equality of the sexes, begins a much longer essay and article that talks about the equality of the sexes. But me, I like to read the poetry. So the poem starts, That minds are not alike, Full well I know, This truth each day's experience will show. The heights surprising some great spirits soar, With inborn strength mysterious depths explore. So remember, the title of the article is On the Equality of the Sexes. And the opening stanza seeds a point in the argument, saying that minds are not alike regarding to the sexes. But the way she writes it is as if she's about to give us a yeah, but, or yeah, but, coming forward. She goes, yeah, yeah, we're different, but. That minds are not alike, well, full well I know this truth each day's experience will show, but heights surprising some great spirit soar with inborn strength, mysterious depths explore. Yeah, but you don't see what goes on in our minds. You don't understand the highs of spirit the depths of thought. She seems to say to men reading this, you are unable to understand very little of this thing we do. As I will say very abruptly that I am unable to understand the perspective of the things that you do. Her style quickly elevates in a way that moves beyond my understanding. She says, Their eager gaze surveys the path of light, confessed it stood to Newton's piercing sight. Deep science, like bashful maid, retires, and but the ardent breast her worth inspires. And it sounds like she's beginning to draw a dichotomy based on expectations. She says next that the perseverance... By perseverance, the coy, fair is one. And genius, led by study, wears the crown. And I have to ask, is she saying that one sex is expected to be coy and fair, and that's how they'll succeed? Or the other is expected to study so that they will wear a crown one day? She reiterates an expectation that a woman is judged on her looks while men are judged by their intellect which I think was a thought in a more unenlightened time. She goes on again to see at a certain point. She's drawing in her audience trying to spring a trap. But some there are who wish not to improve, who never can the path of knowledge love, whose souls almost with the dull body won with anxious care each mental pleasure shun. It seems as if she might be saying that the stereotype appears to be true, 
but then goes on to argue that it's not by nature that this thing is true. She says, weak is the leveled and nervated mind, and but while here to vegetate designed. And I had to look up and really break down that sentence to understand what was going on in those two lines. And a lot of times I'll farm out this work to a YouTube video that breaks down the poem that I, I have a hard time understanding. The fact is with Judith and Sergeant Murray, there isn't a lot of that out there, so I had to actually do the work, which is really hard. She says it's, it's culture that causes this. Weak is the leveled, enervated mind, uh, the thing taken away from. And but while here to vegetate designed. That the, vege uh, that, uh, uh, the culture causes this enervation of the mind, the vegetative state that may look inherent or natural. No, in fact, it is not natural. It comes from expectation of culture. But what, but what I can't tell from the poem is if she's saying that there are those like that or if she's saying that there are those of you like that. And by you, I mean men. She continues, the torpid spirit mingling with its clod, which I love that line, can scarcely boast its origin from God. Stupidly dull, they move, progressing on. They eat and drink with and all their work is done. And uh, any time I have the opportunity to read the word torpid, I take it. I love, for some reason, that is such an uncommon word that has such a depth of meaning to it. And it means something akin to weak, but it's not weak, it's more. But it doesn't sound as if she's describing women anymore even if it is the male perspective, because of, of the last line that she says in this grouping of phrases, stupidly dull, they move progressing on, they eat and drink and all their work is done. I mean, maybe she's talking about a certain stereotype given to women. It's not one that I would notice, but it can be clear equally on the opposite side. The torpid spirit mingling with this clod can scarcely boast its origin from God. Of course, if I pay attention a few lines down, I think I might actually get an answer to this question that I, you know, my misunderstanding or my, my uh, mental weakness that makes it hard for me to get this. Yet cannot I their sentiments imbibe who this distinction to the sex ascribe as if a woman's form must needs enroll a weak, a servile, and inferior soul. So I guess what she's saying here is, if I'm understanding it correctly, why do we think this way? It doesn't make any sense. It's just in hindsight that I can get that this, that, that she's describing this common stereotype amongst academia in the 1790s. By this point, Sergeant Murray is clearly saying that she doesn't agree with the sentiment she had been describing. She goes on to make clear her perspective in that perspective that will set the tone for her essay that comes later. The final lines 
of her poem. They rob us of the power to improve and then declare we only trifles love. Yet hasten the arrow when the world shall know that such only dwell below. The soul unfettered to no sex confined was for the abodes of cloudless day designed. Meantime, we emulate their many fires through eridation, all their thoughts inspires. Yet nature with equality imparts and noble passions swell in female hearts. In, in 2023, we get, we can look in hindsight and hear words like they rob us of the power to improve. And we can reflect on the work that has been done in the centuries by women, for women, through first, second wave feminism, through womanism, through uh, many of the social movements that have had to fight for suffrage for a thing that she would argue was not true above, only below. That that equality is already above, but what we understand to be nature is wrong. And in 2023, we know this to be true without argument. But you know, even in 2023, this old stereotype, like many others, do more than rear an ugly head, but work to reassert themselves again as some form of natural order. For some reason still, and especially you still, have this fight and have to fight this gendered nonsense every day. And the reason I wanted to talk about Judith Sargent Murray, and I had to tell Mary this, I said, I'm sorry, you're going to have to read the poem. Is that because there is no American universalism without Judith Sargent Murray. Uh, she was the first female published author in the United States one of the earliest of the suffragists in this poem and this article is commonly referenced in the 1970s in the, uh, in the women's movements. She was a universalist theologian, even though she might not call herself that. She was well-educated and central to the rise of American universalism and by association, Unitarian universalism. But for the longest time in our history, she was simply known as the wife of American Universalist minister John Murray. Now, John Murray is a very notable founder of universalism in the United States, uh, in Gloucester, Massachusetts. Born a Calvinist in England, he, was, he embraced universalism. And during that time, he would lose his wife and child, end up excommunicated. I think he went to debtor's prison for a while. And after all that trauma, decided he would come to America, never preach again until a farmer named Thomas Potter forced him to. And bingo, bango, we've got American universalism. Having said that, had it not been for Judith Sargent, I have to wonder if John Murray would have made it as far as he did. 
Judith Sargent Murray became an advocate and continued to be a writer of poems, stories, plays, at, pardon me, editorial papers, including her most famous work on the equality of the sexes. And she wrote the first universalist catechism in the United States. She was a proponent and defender of the separation of church and state, believing that she should not have to pay taxes to first parish congregationalist, since she was not a member of that church. That she should be able to support the church of her choosing. She, among others, actually argued this before the Massachusetts Supreme Court that they should not have to pay a church tax. They won their case. And because they won their case, John Murray became the first universalist minister in the United States. There are only a few things that she did in her life. I'm sorry. She's better known as a woman's rights activist than a universalist, historically. After, see, after John Murray died, she would publish his biography in not finding anyone that preached to her satisfaction as her husband did. She would move with her daughter to Natchez, Mississippi, where she, uh, her daughter had married a Harvard man who grew up in Natchez. Following Judith's death, her daughter and grandchild would die and there would be no formal heir of her memory. And for some reason, Judith Sergeant Murray laid to rest in the Fatherland Cemetery in Natchez, Mississippi, would be forgotten to time. A magical story about John Murray is told about his trip from England to the Americas. There is actually a UU children's song about it, about his story to the tune of My Bonnie Lies Over the Ocean. Uh, it was something like John Murray sailed over the ocean. This magical story about John Murray never wanting to preach again and being forced by Thomas Potter to do it or his boat would never be able to leave the harbor because the wind would never settle up that God had made. This amazing lore. And, and we forgot. Judith Sargent. Until. One minister along with a parishioner heading from Jackson, Mississippi, uh, the minister who served in the UU Church in Jackson, Mississippi, in the one in Ellisville, Mississippi, they were uh, driving to Baton Rouge to attend the installation of their new young minister. And they'd make a phone call because they'd heard that Judith Sargent Murray had lived in Natchez, Mississippi. And they would stop at the house that she died and, in the, and they would ask. She died in 1820. Did she leave anything? And uh, having been turned away multiple times, he kept up with it. And on this trip, finally, he let him in the attic and found boxes, boxes, boxes of papers, books, and writings prepared for publication but never published. If you look up Judith Sargent Murray on the Wikipedia, it tells you that a good biography has never really been published and her legacy is just now being understood 
And it is because she lied forgotten for so many years. So that we could tell the story of John Murray. Who I suspect would be unhappy that that happened. But I reckon if we call John Murray the father of American universalism, I rightly suspect that Judith Sargent is the mother. Because there is no John Murray without Judith Sargent. Not because she was a loving wife, which I'm sure she was, but because of her wit, her commitment to writing, her tenacity, her ability to actually make a living and get paid. She was equal to John Murray in every way, even if we're just getting to know her legacy now. And by now, I mean the last 50 years or so. But this is not a new story to Unitarian Universalism. Though we are a liberal faith, we still struggle with uh, the equity when we understand our history. How much of our UU history has been forgotten or left aside because it didn't take place in the Northeast? Because it was led by a woman who died in the wrong place. Or African Americans. Or people in the LGBTQ community who couldn't come out. How many women in this faith, even in the last multiple years, were isolated and abandoned because of their desire to stand behind pulpits? It's, it's my honor to follow this pulpit behind someone like Reverend Kathy. Because she could stand with that voice. She could stand as, the, uh, as part of a living legacy of Unitarian Universalism that now ordains women regularly. Though even a hundred years ago, it did not. How much of our history have we forgotten because someone died in the wrong place? Because their children did not adhere or their family did not adhere to the same faith that they had? How many people have gone on before us? In this congregation alone, I suspect there is a history a history that has been forgotten. A history of people who just showed up, did what they needed to do, and didn't uh, shoot for the center. How do we remember our history? How do we remember everybody? I suppose we can't remember everybody. But how can we be better as a faith in giving appropriate honor where that honor is deserved? Even if it shows that in some instances our faith has not been faithful to them. I don't know. Uh, but we course correct, right? We dig for the history, we dig for the future. Or we dig for the history, we build the future from that history. We look at the things we don't do so well, we try to do them better. As a faith, as a people, as Unitarian Universalists. We change direction as a liberal religion. 
because revelation is not stuck in the past. And we do this so that we may better know who we were, who we are, and who we will become in the future. Thank you for listening.